Well, good morning, Fellowship Greenville. My name is Jim, and I am one of the pastors here. Thank you very much for being here to worship Jesus with us today. Hey there, across the way, Auditorium 2. You guys look beautiful as usual. And if you are new with us, we are extra special, happy, glad to have you here. Uh, if you have any questions about life here at Fellowship Greenville, you can stop by our first-time guest center in the commons area over here near Auditorium 1. We have a team there that would love to serve you in any way they can. And members and regulars, you need to go bother our friends out at Next Steps, also in the commons, if you're looking to get more involved, whether that is a community group or you're looking for an equipping or a service opportunity or even the UCC, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, go say hey to our friends out in the commons. Additionally, if you are new with us <coughs> on Sunday mornings, we're usually preaching and teaching straight through an entire book of the Bible. We want to slowly immerse ourselves in scripture so that it drives the way that we think. And we don't want to like, like force our agenda onto the Bible. Instead, we want to see what God's agenda is. And we believe that God will speak to us and change us if we patiently consider his word, how he originally gave it. And doing this has us in the New Testament book of Ephesians, and since it's been a couple weeks, a quick review is in order. <clears throat> so our tagline for Ephesians is God's plan for God's church revealed. Ephesians is a letter, it's from this missionary guy named Paul to his friends in the city of Ephesus about 2,000 years ago, and he is encouraging them on how to be Jesus' people in a space and a place that is rife with moral and commercial and racial and political and religious tensions. Like, we think that's just us. That was the city of Ephesus 2,000 years ago. And Paul knows that following Jesus in a space like that is difficult, and it's not going to get us any socio-cultural cool points real fast. And that's the, sa the same is true for us. But that still means that we have to not change what we think about what God has called us to. So as followers of Jesus, we are called to be his people in the world and for the world. <clears throat> so for Ephesians, chapters one through three is like the work of salvation. What Jesus did in his death and resurrection, with that, God rescues us and creates vertical unity between us and himself and he also creates horizontal unity between us and each other, between all of us and both kinds of unity are based on his kindness and his grace. <clears throat> so then, after the uh, work of salvation in Ephesians one through three, you have the walk of salvation in Ephesians four through six. And here, God's revealed plan is that we belong to him and each other, but what does this look like in practice, especially in our hyper-politicized, hyper-sexualized, hyper-commercialized context? So how do we live this out? Paul uses the word walk in this section again and again to talk about ongoing life with God, with others, and for others. And so today we get to keep thinking about all this stuff in Ephesians 5. So if you'd like to go ahead and get there in your Bibles, that will be good, great, fine, wonderful. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, we'll, we'll keep doing the, the walk of salvation thing here, and we'll get to Ephesians 5 in just a few minutes. <clears throat> now, as you're finding your way there, I, I just want you to know that... And I've said this before, but I am so, 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 so grateful to be one of your pastors here at Fellowship Greenville and to be a part of God's family here at Fellowship Greenville. And I, and I absolutely mean that and believe that and feel that from the bottom of my heart. And I do say that for a couple reasons. <clears throat> one, it is Thanksgiving week, so I kind of have to, but I mean it, I promise. Two, uh, something about Thanksgiving is mentioned in our passage, and so I have been dwelling on that a little bit this week. Um, also three, and I, I legit feel this so deeply. I love getting to serve and teach and minister and 
shepherd here. And one of the things I'm specifically grateful for at this church is the Jesus-centered balance that we try to strike. Because I've tasted life on the different ends of the Christianity spectrum. Like I've tasted the fundamentalism in, the progressivism in, the Pentecostalism in. I got friends in Catholicism and and Calvinism and every, every pit stop in between. And I have dear friends and family in all of those spaces, nearly every Christian expression. And one of the things that I've noticed is that followers of Jesus are all over the map when it comes to their views on and their experiences of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere, all different kinds of beliefs. I'll never forget being about 20 years old and I met this guy on like a Friday night where a bunch of friends were gathered and he got my number from somebody else. He called me up Monday. He just goes, hey dude, can I meet up with you and can I pray over you? And I was like, yeah, dude, I can always use some prayer. I'm an idiot. Like, I'd love to do this. So I meet the guy, obviously, at Bojangles, and we eat lunch, and we're sitting there in the parking lot, and dude lays his hands on me. And then he, like, mumble yells for about 10 minutes and finishes and goes, hey, the Holy Spirit told me to do that. And I'm like, what the Moses? I grew up Baptist. I don't even know what just, I don't have categories. What just happened? Like, I just, I didn't know how to interpret this mumble yelling inside my car in a Bojangles parking lot. It just, I didn't know what to do with it. Now, I've also got friends who have told me stories about the Holy Spirit really showing up in, in, in palatable and tangible ways of these, as they have gathered to pray and worship. And they have felt and sensed the Spirit speak to them in special and mysterious ways, which I think he still does do that in unique and kind of transcendent uh, and visceral ways. And yet, I've also heard people, stories about people who have gathered to do the same thing. And they'll be like, yeah, man. And when, I, when the Spirit started speaking, gold dust started falling from the sky and like blue feathers came floating down from the ceiling. And I go, okay, what the Moses again? I don't have categories for that totally. <clears throat> now, on the other side of things, I have friends in more formal traditions, proper, a little bit more solemn traditions. And they sense the spirit mightily at work, but kind of in the somberness, in their liturgy, in their rituals. And I still think he moves in the stillness. And I think he speaks in the silence, absolutely. But I know some people who box the spirit into their tradition so tightly because usually I think they're scared of things that they can't totally understand and they just want a God that they can manage and that's called idolatry, right? Now, also on this side of things, and this one is personal and close to my heart, and it's just very plain. The spirit absolutely 1 million percent still speaks to us through the words of Holy Scripture, Period. The Spirit speaks through the Word. And we see this in the life of Jesus and the early church. And I believe with all my heart that if you want to be guided by and prompted by and surrendered to God's Spirit, you better be in God's Word. But I have also felt the temptation to take this way too far and go, oh, the Spirit only speaks through the Word and nothing else. And that also feels like us telling the Holy Spirit what he can and can't do. Now, around the same time that this dude prayed over me in the Bojangles parking lot. Uh, I was driving by this charismatic church that I used to go to because I really liked the music a lot. <clears throat> and out on the road, I won't tell you what road because you might guess the church out on the road, they had a scrolling sign. And the scrolling sign said, the spirit is here. You can't explain it. You can only experience it. And so I'm like, trying not to wreck going, no, that's not like, <clears throat> I'm like, that's a false dichotomy. Why are you putting those two in a boxing match and telling them to go? Like, that's not, I knew that wasn't <clears throat> the thing. Even if we can't, explain everything perfectly or experience everything fully, I know that that's a both and and not an either or. So all of these examples, all these things to say, I am so grateful for our church trying to strike a Jesus-centered, spirit-sensitive balance in all of these things. Now, 
This is tough uh, on a theological and practical front. I'm just understanding the Holy Spirit period, like third person of the Trinity who is fully God. He is a person and not an it. But it's even more difficult when we seek to understand the movement of the Spirit of God against the backdrop of the Spirit of the age. So Paul uses this phraseology in Ephesians 2, and it's the same same word. He wants us to pay attention. So what's the Spirit of the age? Well, rather than God's personal presence, the Spirit of the age is the impersonal ethos we all live by if we're not following Jesus. And we've already kind of seen this some at the beginning of Ephesians 5. The, the spirit of the age is the, the tug in your chest when you hear the talking heads on the news tell you what you have to believe. The spirit of the age is, it, it's, it's the cultural narratives and algorithms that you think only apply to the people you disagree with. That's the spirit of the age. So when Christians think about money and hard work, when Christians think about the life of the unborn, or when we think about welcoming the foreigner and the stranger, or when we think about our sexual ethic of marital monogamy and fidelity, or when we think about the beauty and the glory of racial diversity, when Christians think about these things in primarily political categories rather than seeing them as issues of being faithful to Jesus, that likely means that you're being led by the spirit of the age more than the spirit of God. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get you to feel how these early believers in Ephesus were thinking about the Holy Spirit. This is not just, what I said is not just an us today thing. This is a a problem in the city of Ephesus 2,000 years ago. These Ephesian Christians were grappling with what, what is life in the Spirit like because of everything going on? And because we live in a similar place, we have to ask similar questions. What does it mean to live a life yielded to and submitted to the Holy Spirit? And how do I know when it's actually the Spirit and not just a personal projection or like a past denominational reflex or some cultural narrative? And as a church family, I hope you know this, this is one of our core values, depending on the Holy Spirit. That our entire lives as individuals and that our life together as a church would be completely reliant on the Spirit of God. And so I, I've hinted at some of the extremes and maybe some of the, the wrong answers, but, but what does this positively entail? So in short, this is our question. What should the spirit life look like? That is what we need to think about today. And this is the same question as, hey, what's the walk of salvation? There are dozens of little questions underneath this. Does the spirit really show up and do the mysterious speaking to our heart? How do we really know it's him? How can we sense him moving, and we're gonna bump up against all those questions today, but they're all kind of wrapped up in this single question. What should the spirit life look like? We have to think well about that. And today, Ephesians 5, 18 through 21 is going to help us answer our question. That's our passage for this morning, Ephesians chapter five, verses 18 through 21. And then after I read it, um, comes my line, this is the word of God for the people of God, and then comes your line, Thanks be to God with hearty, happy uh, gratitude. Make it count. Uh, So here we go. Ephesians chapter five, I'll start reading in verse 18. Here we go. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Now, it might not like, uh, seem like much, but these few verses offer us a crucial answer to the question, what should the spirit life be like? Um, but if you do wanna think more <clears throat> about that and think about how the rest of scripture considers that, probably my favorite book on all this is called He Who Gives Life, The Doctrine of the Holy Spirit by Graham Cole. I think I have a picture of it for you. He Who Gives Life, The Doctrine of the Holy Spirit by Graham Cole. Uh, he is an Australian theologian and he leaves no stone unturned when it comes to thinking well about the Holy Spirit. So go snag that if if you want to ponder more about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. But for us today, this single sentence in Ephesians 5 offers us more than enough to think about. And it starts in a fun and weird place. Look at verse 18. Don't get drunk with wine. Now, Paul starts this massive sentence like this for two reasons. One, hey, he knows about Luke's story in Acts chapter two when the Holy Spirit was first given and it was so weird. People were like, are these guys drunk? It's 9 a.m. That's not good. He knows all that. And so he's about to contrast drunkenness with spirit-filledness as an echo and reminder of that story. The second reason he starts this massive sentence with drunkenness is that he's not writing just about a general Christian, hey, don't do this. He's writing into the world of Ephesus. And just as the city of Ephesus practiced an array of sexual acts to show their loyalty to different Greek and Roman gods, um, the same was actually true in Ephesus. The same was true of drunkenness. Now, just an aside, uh, uh, drunkenness for us today is problematic for for different reasons. And just to be really direct and, and hopefully pastoral, if that's something that you struggle with, brother or sister, you are not meant to fight that alone. I have three dear friends right now who are at different levels in their sobriety, and I am so proud of them for trying to trust Jesus with that and trying to work on that. And if that is an issue that you struggle with, uh, there's a lot of people who are finding healing and help and freedom uh, through our regeneration class that meets on Monday evenings. And if you're interested in, in regen, please send us an email, and we would love to, to walk with you as you seek freedom from that and try to trust the Lord with all that. <clears throat> but uh, uh, listen to why drunkenness was especially a problem in Ephesus. There was this God in Ephesus, Dionysius. He was the God of wine and religious fanaticism. So everybody in Ephesus believed that Dionysius created wine and the way that you would worship this God is that you would go up into his temple, drink way too much, and then whatever you saw or whatever you said or whatever you did in your altered estate was thought to have been from Dionysius. And so Paul is getting ready to, and everybody in Ephesus knows that, Paul's getting ready to say that life in the spirit is not at all like life when you're, uh, when you're drinking spirits, when you're doing the Dionysius thing, but it is a little bit, but also not at all. <clears throat> he's get, that's what he's getting ready to do. So verse 18, really quickly, look, this drinking too much leads to debauchery, which I don't know what that word means, so I'm doing my word studies and looking it up. It sounds like an old King James word to me. The word just means like uh, wastefulness and, and recklessness. It's about shame, shameful indulgence, where you're past the, pain, past the point of caring at all. So watch this. <clears throat> Paul's doing a comparison and contrast here. Then he shifts gears to talk about the Holy Spirit, and the parallel is really clear. If you drink too much, you start to say and do things that aren't really you, but you're still the one saying and doing them. So it's like, well, is that you or is it not? And usually it's about you. Like wine-influenced words can be extra self-absorbed. And with the spirit life, it's similar and it's different. If our lives are guided by the spirit, we're gonna start saying and doing things that aren't really us, but we're still the ones who are saying and doing, saying and doing them. So it's like, uh, okay, okay, Holy Spirit. And a life submitted to the spirit isn't self-focused, but it's 
others focus. So the spirit life doesn't yield indulgence and wastefulness. Rather, it yields intentionality and worship. Eugene Peterson um, is spot on with these kinds of things in his commentary on Ephesians. He writes, Christian maturity is not a matter of doing more for God. Just a reminder, because we always need it. Christian maturity is not a matter of doing more for God. It is, doing, it is God doing more in and through us. Immaturity is noisy with worry-fueled self-importance. That's, that's the drunkenness thing. But maturity is quietly content to pursue a life of obedient humility. Christian worship is an intentional act of redressing the proportions and priorities from me working for God to God working in and through me. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Peterson is, is absolutely spot on. If we try to do Ephesians 5, if we try to do the walk in love and the walk in light, and we try to do that without the Holy Spirit, we will find ourselves tirelessly laboring to please God and try to show off before him. We're, we're gonna exhaust ourselves trying to get his attention and merit his love and bend his arm. But the gospel of Jesus, the good news about Jesus tells us that we are completely loved and now by the spirit, God works in us and through us so that we, we can now be conduits of divine love for others. That's broadly what the spirit life is all about. It's about Jesus' own life of love being lived through us. Hey, why do you think Paul calls us the body of Christ? That's who we are in the world and for the world. Now, before we get to some of the specifics here, we have to address a small theological problem. When Paul says, be filled with the spirit, does that imply that believers aren't really filled with the spirit and that it's solely up to us to, to do something about it? That, that sounds a little off. It feels a little too like black and white. I, th I think there's more nuance than that. And if you take a look at the rest of the New Testament, you will see that believers are given the Spirit. We are indwelt with the Spirit. We are empowered with the Spirit. It uses the language of we are filled with the Spirit. Even in Ephesians already, chapter one, Paul says, you are sealed with the Spirit for the day, the final day of redemption. In chapter three uh, in Ephesians, Paul says, you are strengthened in the Holy Spirit. So when we get to this line in Ephesians chapter five, Paul is not saying, hey, the spirit is withholding himself. He's just given you a little bit of his power and presence and now it's up to you to like reel him in and get the rest of him. That is not what he's saying. Instead, he's saying, hey, you're filled, but you don't live like it. Live like you're filled. I like the old the illustration of an old uh, tuning knob on a radio. So this is for people born before 1985. Like the spirit is always <clears throat> like singing out the gospel song of God's love and God's salvation and grace. And sometimes we're just not dialed into the right station and we can't hear it clearly. Or sometimes we're just listening to something different altogether. And so this filledness is tuning in perfectly to what the spirit is singing and saying and, and, and doing. Uh, furthermore, <clears throat> for nerd fun, the preposition with is actually pretty, it's breathable, if you will, uh, in the Greek. It can also mean in or by. So be filled by the Spirit can sound a little different. That implies that our lives are open to him so that he then is the agent. <clears throat> He's the one who fills us up with that which is truly life. But however you do your preposition there, here, here's what happens. Paul gives us one command and four qualifiers. He gives us one thing to do and there are four evidences of that thing. The one thing is be filled with the Spirit. That's the command. And look at verse 19, here are the four evidences. Addressing one another, psalms and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord your heart. Giving thanks always to God the Father. And lastly, submitting to one another out of reverence for Jesus. So, 
easy answer is what should the spirit life look like? Those four things, and we will discuss them each. But before we do, I want to make a broad observation about all four of these. There's something that all four kind of have in common, and we spent the whole summer talking about this, and that's that all of these are about words, psalms, hymns, speaking to one another, addressing one another, spiritual songs, uh, giving thanks, even, even submitting to one another presupposes communication about needs and wants, right? So all of these are something about words, something about our words. So I have some questions for you. Like, do you want the Spirit to move in your life? Do you want him to show up in power? Do you want to feel your prayers as heard, your worship as intimate, your time in scripture as God communicating right to you? Like, do you want that? I, I hope that you want that. I hope you want the wind of God to blow through your life and overturn the tables of greed and lust and anger. I hope you want to sense God, feel God changing you and changing others. I hope you want to see revival. I hope you wanna give your life away in service. I hope you want to see the fruit of mission, to know the depths of community, to taste the glory of the unshakable hope we have because the tomb is empty. And all of these things are the case because our hearts are buoyant because of the spirit. I hope you want that. Like, do you want to be a part of a movement where the Spirit sets people free from addiction, where the abused find belonging, where the prideful are humbled, where the despairing find love, where people experience the forgiveness that Jesus offers, where grace and peace and justice and joy and truth and salvation are all we ever eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Like, do you want the Spirit to move like that? Do you want that? Now, here's the deal. Listen, listen. Why don't you think about your words a little more? <laughs> right? This is at me. I, I'm guilty here. I want God to show up. I want him to show off. I want him to blow my mind. I want it to be some huge, massive, spiritual thing. And he's like, hey, bro, change your tone of voice. Okay, true story. Not in my notes. Two weeks ago, I get a call from a guy who lives in California. He's 64 years old. And he said, I quit my Netflix subscription so I could just watch Fellowship Greenville sermons. And I was like, probably a bad move. He goes, Charlie Boyd is the greatest preacher that has ever lived. He's the next Billy Graham. And he goes, you're all right. And then, <clears throat> not kidding you. And then he goes, and I'm like, bro, I don't know how much time you have. He's 64 years old, lived in California, never been out here. And he goes, I have a problem with something you said in a sermon seven years ago. I was like, really, tell me about it. What's your problem? And his problem was my tone of voice in a sermon seven years ago. And I was like, bro, just take a chill pill. But I was also like, really, Lord? <laughs> right? Do I want the Spirit to move and show up and do things, amazing things? Maybe I should think about my words a little bit better. Right? I think, I think that's what Paul is saying. This is cut and paste from every sermon from this past summer on the words we use. So that's my broad observation about all four of these qualifiers, that one of the dominant ways that the Spirit wants to work in our lives is through our words. I mean, I think that's our entire, this past summer project. Like, go listen to those all this week. You're gonna have some time with your little vacation days. Go re-listen to those because I believe that it's true. And I pray that we would be a church that thoughtfully considers the power behind what we say and how the Spirit might be working in the words that we use to make us more like Jesus. So how does he wanna do that? That's the four qualifiers specifically. So let's look at each for just a minute. The first evidence of a spirit-filled life is verse 19. Speak to one another with songful truth. Speak to one another with songful truth. <clears throat> now, Paul is really happily annoying right here. He uses the word speak, and then the things that you're supposed to speak are songs. Like he's messing with me, like, bro, come on, just 
Help me, help me a little here, Paul. Like, why are they different kinds of songs? <clears throat> Especially this is a problem because he outright just says it in the next part. Sing and make melody, he just, he just says it. So why does he say, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? So absolutely, the application here is melodic and corporate, and we should be singing. <clears throat> but the more subtle implication is that our communication with one another should be rooted in the truth of who God is. Like, I, hey, I shouldn't talk to you based on primarily my perception of you, but God's perception of you. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, however we parse them out, are divinely drenched categories for processing life. They are not about using words based on what we most immediately and naturally feel, think, or want. And so this is about us speaking with each other and singing with each other in such a way that, watch, we are lifted out of ourselves and we see things the way that God wants us to see them. And I do think this applies to like corporate and gathered worship and song, absolutely. I don't know about you, but are you ever in a space of corporate singing and musical worship and you feel just a more natural sense of joy and peace? Like, I don't know if I could survive if I didn't sing the gospel together with you guys every week. And, and one of the reasons is because I, I can almost feel it change my perspective and my perception of everything that's true in the world. Like, things make more sense. I, I see my sin more plainly. I see God's mercy more majestically. God's love feels truer. His presence feels nearer. Grace feels more real. What I think this passage is saying is, when you speak and sing the truth of scripture and the truth of who Jesus is, the spirit makes all of these things shine with greater brilliance. And I know, I know people who have legitimate reason why they, why they can't sing. I understand that for, for med medical reasons or whatnot, but most, most of the time, I think our excuses are kind of lazy. I think most of the time, our refusal to sing is based on personality or circumstance or tiredness or work stress or financial strain or relational fragility or emotional fr frustration, which all of these just means that you're human. And I think that just adds up often to the sin of apathy. And refusal to join in the song of God's people, I think is kind of just going, no Holy Spirit, I'm fine with not knowing joy and peace in their full brilliance. I'm fine with not knowing grace and truth in all of their glory. I think singing, the Spirit uses song to do that. He says, address one another in song. Meaning, I need your singing and you need mine. Like if the pain of your life is so much that you can't sing, then you need my singing. You need to get under it and get beside it. And if my sin is so self-focused that I think I'm above singing or I don't have time for it, then I need your singing. I fully believe. You can call me out on this and tell me I'm wrong, but I fully believe that how a church sings is one of the most direct commentaries on that church's unity, belief in the gospel, and openness to the spirit. I fully believe that with all my heart. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee is, is, is on this same page. He says, where the spirit of God is, there is also singing. The early church was characterized by its singing, so also every generation where there is renewal by the spirit, a new hymnody breaks forth. So I think this is the kind of thing that Paul is getting at and the phrase, a new hymnody breaks forth is just really, really cool. So 50 points to, uh, to Gordon Fee right there. Now, this leads us to our second and overlapping evidence of a spirit-filled life. The first is speak to one another with songful truth. And the next one is sing, to, sing with one another from your heart. Sing with one another <clears throat> from your heart. So the first kind of singy thing feels more horizontal, <clears throat> uh, addressing one another. And this one feels more vertical right here. And verse 19, it, it says, sing to the Lord from your heart, with your heart there. <clears throat> and 
The commentary here is awesome and endless. Uh, Rabbi Avram Yeshua Heshel writes the following. In singing, we perceive what is otherwise beyond perceiving. Song is not only an act of expression, but also a way of bringing down the spirit from heaven to earth. Jonathan Egner writes, singing is in and of itself a sacred duty. Not just hearing the music play, not just being taken to a place emotionally, but the actual act of singing. Even our boy Bono from U2 gets it. He says, words and music, singing, words and music did for me what religious, rigorous, rigorous argument could never do. They introduced me to God. Not belief in God, but an experiential sense of God over art and literature and girls and my mates. The way into my spirit was a combination of words and music. And one of my favorites here, John Wesley, this is in his introduction to the 1761 first Methodist hymnal of all time. Wesley says, sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. Lift up your voice with strength and have an eye towards God in every word you sing and see that your heart is offered continually to him. So I think, I think Wesley has been reading this line in Ephesians 5. And the point here is that the Holy Spirit wants to use singing to do heart work on you. Singing as the church, you gotta get this, is not greasing up the emotions so that we can get to the sermon. I'm not the main course preceded by an optional appetizer. No, no, no. Singing is a space where the heavenly potter molds and sculpts and shames and forms uh, or shapes and and forms us. And I could tell you uh, a mountain of stories about how singing was gas on the fire of the missionary movement of the 18th century. And there are beautiful accounts of how a rise in song helped push the different abolitionist movements in the 19th century. And even, oh, I love this, even in the 20th century, when Dietrich Bonhoeffer wanted to train pastors and equip them for ministry in Germany when Hitler was rising to power. Basically, when when Bonhoeffer wanted to start his own UCC deal, right? This is what he did, you ready? He got two dozen guys in a house and they started every day before the sun was up, before breakfast, singing psalms and hymns together. And they sang so much, they got through the entire book of psalms multiple times in a month. That is how Bonhoeffer was convinced that God would raise up pastors and shepherds for his people under the Nazi regime. They would be spirit-filled singing shepherds. Here's what you and I do. I am tired. I don't like that song. I mean, he's not my favorite, favorite worship leader. I, well, I like what's her name better. Do you, hear, do you hear how dumb that is, right? Mike Cosper says the Bible gets much thinner if we take out all the songs and references to singing, and I'll double down on Cosper, and I'll say your life in the spirit gets much thinner if you take out all the songs and singing. Again and again and again and again, one of the most used tools in the spirit's hands is the gift of song, and so we better dive in and and sing up. Next, and briefly, because I hope you will live it this week, gratitude, give thanks for everything because of Jesus. This is verse 20. This is the third evidence of a spirit-filled life. Give thanks for everything because of Jesus. Now, like the first two, gratitude is about your words. Unspoken gratitude is like an unsung song. It doesn't count. It's not real. It's no song at all. Also like singing. Gratitude is another tool in the Spirit's hands to make us like Jesus. And uh, 
man, I could go for days right here too. <clears throat> if you've never Googled the, uh, the effects of gratitude on mental health, Merry Christmas, okay? <clears throat> it's just staggering and, and tons of fun. I could give you way too many quotes about gratitude like I did with singing, and I do trust that this week God will nudge your heart to be thankful for his goodness and his faithfulness in your life. But here's what I wanna do just for a second. I just wanna put some questions before you. And seriously, t- take a deep breath and say, okay, Holy Spirit, point something out here as we think about the posture of our hearts as it relates <clears throat> to Thanksgiving. Here we go. <clears throat> Are you more cynical or grateful? Which one? Do you complain more than you appreciate? Are you, oh, I hate this one. Are you more suspicious than you are thankful? Okay, here we go. Do you, oh, this is the worst. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Not really. Do you grumble about people more than you value them? It's Thanksgiving week. Do you grumble about people more than you value them? And if those questions weren't hard enough, and they are, actually read the verse. Look at verse 20. Look, give thanks always. Gosh, Paul, come on, bro. That means means this is about a constant posture of our heart. And look, he's not done. Give thanks always and for everything. Oh my gosh, dude, just please shut up. For everything, come on, Paul, really? For everything? What this means, because look at the rest of the verse, it says, in Jesus' name. That means because of Jesus, because of the gospel, guess what? We can view all of life, all of life as a gift. Because the spirit has been poured out in our hearts because of the gospel, now we can view all of life as a gift and the joys can be more glorious and the loves can be more intimate and even the hard things can be seen as clearer opportunities to learn from God and to trust him. What I'm saying is it's actually feasible to live like this, surrendered to the spirit and overflowing with thanks. So please, Holy Spirit, make us a gratitude-soaked people. All right, lastly, when the Spirit is moving and working, we will speak to one another with song for truth. We will sing with one another from our hearts, give thanks for everything because of Jesus, and we will submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. This is verse 21, if you're following along. Submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. Now, this one is not annoying or difficult to understand, just to do. Because, generally speaking, we just don't like this idea because we think of the world too individualistically. Like, this is America. Hey, I have my rights. My existence is about my personal life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. But the Bible doesn't care about your personal rights as much as it cares about your personal responsibilities. And here, that means submitting to one another. And if that's some friction in your chest for us here in our you know, socio-cultural political space, that's one thing. But for Ephesus, it was mind-blowing. For, for these Ephesian Christians to think about a Gentile submitting to a Jew or men submitting to women or an aristocrat submitting to a servant, that's just mind-blowing. This verse is teaching that when, you gotta get this, Verse 21 is teaching that when the spirit is at work and alive and moving and doing things in a local church, every believer will be looking for opportunities to give of themselves and submit to every other believer in that church. 
What do you mean by submission, Jen? Thanks for asking. Submission is a conscious decision about the dignity and the worth of other people in Christ and making that a higher priority than your own wants and rights. One commentator notes, our society emphasizes equality, but submission is a stronger idea. With equality, you still have the battle of rights, but with mutual submission, we give up rights and support each other. This kind of submission is love in action. It brings an equal valuing and is the power by which a Christian community establishes itself. Submission will not allow us to promote ourselves and our own interests, but neither does it make us doormats to be used by others. Legitimate submission cannot be coerced, but is the result of a spirit-filled life. And this last line leads us to the idea, the real reason why submitting to one another is so important. Jesus himself said, no one, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. Meaning, when Jesus came from heaven to earth, he had all the rights of heaven, all the rights of heaven. He's God in the flesh, but he laid aside his rights and walked perfectly in step with the Spirit. And as he was perfectly yielded to the spirit, he submitted to the will of the father and that included submitting himself to others, caring for them, serving them, loving them, going out of his way and putting their needs above his own. And when the gospels say that he taught as one who had authority, that's because it was the spirit behind and around his words, giving them purpose and power and meaning. And the spirit uses words, we know this, especially sung words. The night he was arrested, his friends sang a song together. When he was on the cross, he had the Psalms on his lips. And we love the idea of the Spirit showing up radically in our lives. Like we want flashy, like picturesque, Instagrammable times when we think the Spirit is working so we can brag about God even though it's really about us. But get this, if we are paying attention to Jesus, his flawless surrender to the Spirit led him all the way to the cross. And he willingly submitted to God, which means he submitted to death, and he submitted to us by dying for us. The righteous for the unrighteous, the holy for the unholy. He took the judgment of sin and death that belongs to us that we might be welcomed into God's family and be filled with God's spirit. Jesus' destiny, his spirit-yielded destiny was suffering. You can't Instagram that. He followed the spirit all the way to death and out the other side. Romans 8, the same spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now dwells in you. And that is the earth shattering truth. You ready? The resurrection power, the resurrection power that overturned death, that same gospel power is alive in us through the spirit. You gotta believe that. And that means we need to wake up. That means we need to sing up. We need to rethink our words. We need to be a little bit more grateful and give our lives away in service with no expectation of return. This, all of this is about trusting the spirit to do what we can't, to make Jesus glorious in our lives. And all this, all this one anothering here and all this one anothering in the gospel, it all makes me think, what if the Spirit is most at work in my life when I care about him being most at work in other people's lives? What if that's true? What if we joyfully lived songful, other-centered lives in self-giving love just like Jesus? And when we did that, the Spirit took all that and he made kingdom come happen all around us. Wouldn't that be incredible? 
I think this is what Eugene Peterson means when he says Christian maturity is not, is not about me working for God, but trusting that God is working in and through me by his spirit. So yes, I think the spirit still speaks to us in secret and beautiful and mysterious ways. And yes, he still speaks to us clearly through his word, absolutely. But against the backdrop of the spirit of this age, he also wants to continue Jesus' own resurrection life through ours. And it seems anticlimactic, but guess how that happens? When we speak and sing the gospel, when we're really, really grateful, and when we learn the art of submitting to one another out of reverence for Jesus, that will make resurrection power happen. And here's the thing that is still so mind-boggling to me. This is not a just out of reach paradigm to go, come on, you'll never make it. This invitation to this kind of spirit life is actually possible. So Fellowship Greenville, God's plan for God's church is revealed in the good news of Jesus crucified and resurrected. And that good news will be experienced as we open our lives to the Holy Spirit together. And I I hope you believe that that's true and I hope you want that. Let it be, Jesus, please. Um, Today we get to respond to all these things by sharing in Holy Communion together. And as our worship team plays, I just want to encourage you to take some time, maybe take a few actual long, deep breaths and think and reflect on the good news of Jesus. Reflect on the gospel, reflect on the cross and the beauty of what Jesus did for us there and consider what kind of cross-shaped life the Spirit is calling you into. Let's think about those things. And like Ephesians reminded us, let's give thanks. And specifically right now, let's give thanks for the body and blood of Jesus that was offered up for us.